Parshas Truma begins in the Pasuk where Hashem says, V'as-. Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you about the new Shmuz book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Over the past 15 years or so, I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you the amount of times I look and say, why are you doing this? Do you understand what the relationship needs? Do you understand what your spouse is thinking? I put together this book to detail some of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and the book has been extremely well received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to Chassan and Kala teachers, to marriage therapists, and the reviews have been really, really very heartening. If you'd like to get a copy, it's available on Amazon, it's available in your local bookstores, it's also available on theshmooze.com. If you purchase it on theshmooze.com, in addition to the hardcover book, you'll also get the audiobook as well as the ebook as a free bonus. If you'd like to do that, please go to theshmooze.com, T H E S H M U Z.com. I think you'll enjoy it, I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Thank you. Make a mikdash, a commandment to the Jewish nation, make a dwelling place, and says Hashem, I will live in it. And then Hashem gives very specific, exact directions as to how to build a Mishkan and how to build the Kalim of the Mishkan. And very interestingly, the most difficult of all the Kalim was the menorah. Apparently the menorah was not just a construct in a physical sense, but there was tremendous spiritual elements to it, tremendous spiritual depth. And if you carefully read the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, You should make, Hashem says to Moshe Benu, you should make a menorah. menorah. The menorah shall be made. Two opposite expressions the Pasuk uses. You should make a menorah, and then the, the menorah shall be made. And Rashi points out that that's exactly what happened. <clears throat> Hashem said to Moshe Benu, make the menorah. Moshe Benu said, I don't understand how to make it. <clears throat> Hashem said, I'm going to explain it to you. Hashem explained it. Still Moshe didn't understand it. <clears throat> Hashem said, I'm going to show you in fire. And Hashem showed against the har, against the mountain, an image of the menorah on fire. And still Moshe could not understand it. <clears throat> Finally, Hashem said, throw your clump of gold into the fire. And Moshe Benu threw the clump of gold into the fire, and from of the fire out came the menorah. The reason why the Pasuk says, Te'aseh, is you shall make it, but in fact that wasn't what happened. Moshe Benu couldn't make it, he couldn't fathom the depth of it, so rather it was made on its own, it was, instead of Asisa, instead of you making it, it was Te'aseh, it was made on its own. And it's, that's how Rashi explains this Pasuk. And I'd like to ask the obvious question on this Rashi. One of the hallmarks of a good teacher is knowing the student. If you understand the student's level and understand their capacity, you can gear the lesson appropriately. But if you don't understand their level, you're not going to be an effective teacher. So here's the problem. Hashem knew exactly Moshe Rabbeinu's level of understanding. Hashem is the creator, and anything that Moshe Rabbeinu was taught was taught by Hashem. And obviously Moshe Rabbeinu was not capable of understanding how to fashion this menorah. As great as he was, as wise as he was, it was beyond human comprehension. So that should be clear to Hashem. Why then did Hashem say, I'm going to tell you how to do menorah, not yet enough, I'm going to show you an image of the menorah, only after you see an image of the menorah, then you could take your clump of gold and throw it in the fire. 
If in fact Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to understand it anyway, why not Hashem just say, take the clump of gold, it's beyond your comprehension, throw it into the fire. But apparently Hashem wanted Moshe to see the image first and only then throw it into the fire. The question is, why was that necessary? And to understand the answer to this question, I really would like to delve into this very difficult concept called Bitochan and Ishtadlus. Probably one of the greatest challenges that we as from Jews have is finding that balance. How much effort do I put in? How much do I rely on Hashem? What's the proper Bitochan? What's the proper Ishtadlus? How does one find the balance? So to do this, what we're going to have to do is tease apart the two different elements of it, Hashem's role and our role, and then see if we can find the balance, find the right balance between them. So let's begin with the following. What is Hashem's role in the picture? So the Rambam tells us, I understand with a complete recognition, that Hashem, Umani, He's the creator and one who runs the world, and He alone, Asa, Ose, He alone did, does, and will do all activities under the sun. Everything that happens, orchestrated, directed by Hashem. No happenstance, no random occurrences. Hashem as that Bore Olam, the Creator, the one who runs the world, involved in every single activity under the sun. And that is the basics of our Emunah system. That is one of the Animamins. No random occurrences, no lucky breaks. Hashem hand-guiding everything in creation. And if you like to understand what that means in plain language, the Chavos of Avos describes Bitochan. He says the essence of Bitochan is recognizing that no human being can help me, no human being can help me. He says, It's not within the capacity of any creation, to help me, nor to harm me. I have to recognize that the decree is set. Hashem determines how many years I'll live, what type of health I'll have, my lifestyle, and what I'll be. Hashem determines exactly, and no human being can impede, no creation can touch me. I walk around with a bubble. Imagine a loose light bubble that protects me. All day long you could try to throw rocks in it, you could try to shoot it, you can't penetrate it. Hashem walks with me all day long, guaranteeing, protecting me. And there's nothing that you can do to affect me, you can't harm me. But as you cannot harm me, you can't help me either. You could be the wealthiest person in the world. If I'm not supposed to get that money, it'll go in one pocket, go out the other pocket. If my time is up, my uncle could be the head of Sloan Kettering. There's nothing that he or anyone else is going to do. No human being can harm me. No human being can help me. My decree is completely in the hand of Hashem. Hashem decrees exactly what it will be and explains the Chobos of Avos, with that understanding, I take my heavy load, and I transfer it to Hashem. I know that Hashem is the Bore, Hashem is the Manig, Hashem is the one who runs the world. But if you'd like to understand quite how far this goes, I'll share with you an interesting observation. I remember back in, I think it was 4th or 5th grade, I had a teacher who taught us how to take a compliment. She said, don't squirm, don't look away. If someone compliments you, look them in the eye and say, thank you very much. Now that's an important life lesson, how to take a compliment. But I never had a teacher who taught me how to take an insult. But the Chavos of Ovas does. He says, when someone rips into you, if someone tears into the essence of you, 
embarrasses you, insults you, you're supposed to turn your eyes heavenwards and say to Hashem, thank you Hashem for revealing a little of my many flaws. I'm supposed to recognize that this human being cannot harm me. If I was to suffer that embarrassment, if he wasn't there, I would have dropped a bowl of hot soup, I would have tripped on the stairs. If I was supposed to suffer that embarrassment, if he wasn't there, I would suffer it some other way. If I wasn't supposed to suffer that embarrassment, not he, not you, not anyone under the sun could have brought it to me. I turn my eyes heavenwards and say, I recognize Hashem and that you are the one who sent that. And if you'd like a muscle to sort of understand it, imagine the following. Imagine I'm speaking through a microphone and I'm speaking to a large audience and you're sitting there and suddenly I turn to you and say, you bleep, 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 I start calling you every name in the book, I start calling you. And you get turn red, you turn white, you stand up and in your anger you walk right over to the loudspeaker, boom, punch it right in the subwoofer. Now, if you were to walk over to me and punch me in the jaw, we could debate whether that's clever or not. But if you walk over to the loudspeaker and punch it, you're missing the point. There's a human being, there's someone speaking into the mic. That's just the sound that's coming out from the loudspeaker. When a human being says something to me, I'm supposed to recognize he is but the shliach. There's someone who's sending a message. That message is sent to me from Hashem. I didn't ask you, mister, to be the nudnik to deliver the message. But at the end of the day, if that pain wasn't coming to me, if that embarrassment wasn't coming to me, you could not bring it to me. I have to recognize that everything that happens to me, everything that occurs, is completely me'is Hashem. And that, if you want to call it, is Hashem's role in the equation. Every single outcome, every single event, totally guiding, totally involved, all day, every day, 365. So then the question becomes, okay, so what's my part? That's Hashem's part, every outcome, and what's my part? And to understand my part in the equation, let's focus on a little different part of the Torah. Rabbeinu Achai makes a very important observation. Every word in the Torah is weighed, measured, and carefully calibrated. The Torah is the ultimate wisdom of Hashem, and the Torah Shebek is the most abbreviated notes only the most concise nuggets of knowledge for the Jewish nation to know. Yet you'll notice that in Parshas Noah we have extreme details about something that seems irrelevant. And we're told the dimensions of the Teva. And Noah built a Teva 300 amas long, 50 amas wide, 30 amas tall. Ask Rabbeinu Machai, why do we need to know that? And what relevance does it have to us 3,000 odd years later the type of wood that Noah used, the size of the rooms, how many floors, what relevance does it have to us? Explains Rabbi Machai that the Torah is teaching us a fundamental lesson. And do the math. Let's assume an amma, let's give up two feet for an amma. 300 ammas means it was 600 feet long, 100 feet wide, and let's say 60 feet tall. If you think about the size of the teva, it was smaller than a football field. If you think about all the animals in creation, the hippos, the rhinos, the elephants, the orangutan, if you think about all the animals in creation, says Ben Machai, 50 such tevas could not possibly fit all the animals in existence. And explains Ben Machai, that's exactly what the Torah wants us to understand. Hashem commanded Noah, do as much as you can. We cannot expect you to build a teva large enough to house all the animals in creation. The Bronx Zoo 
only has 4,000 animals and it's on 265 acres. <clears throat> One acre is about the size of the teva. We cannot expect you, Noah, to build a teva large enough to house all the animals in creation. But on the other hand, you can't just do nothing. You have to do as much as you can in the ways of the world. And only once you've exhausted the derachateva, the ways of the world, only then can you rely on the miracle. And Rabbi Machai says, this is a principle that the Torah is teaching us, and it's repeated over and over and over. Hashem said to Noach, there will be a nace, but you have to do your part. Your part is to do as much as you can, use the world in the ways of the world, and only once you've exhausted it, then you can rely on Hashem. And Rabbi Machai says, if you look through Tanakh, you'll see this principle over and over again. When Yeshua brought the Jewish nation into Eretz Yisrael, and the land was occupied by giants, fortified cities, there was no way in the ways of the world that we could possibly win those wars. And not only did we win, every single battle the Jews won with such miracles, that in one battle at some point when one Jewish soldier fell, who sinned? Where was the sin? So points out Rabbi Nechai, Obviously, there were going to be nisim gluyim, complete miracles. Why then did Yeshua tell the people, guard yourself, and put on your armor, sharpen your swords? Why did He tell them to get ready for war? Obviously, Hashem is going to bring a miracle. Says Rebbein Rechai, that's exactly the point. You have to do your part in the derech in the ways of the world. <clears throat> only once you've exhausted the derech when you've done as much as you can, only then can you rely on a miracle. <clears throat> Yeshua was going, telling the people, get ready to fight. I have to fight the battle. It's going to be won by miracles, but you have to do your part. And if you'd like to see how far this goes, I'll share with you an example that's actually very, very eye-opening. Hashem says to Shmuel Hanavi, Ma'astiv b'mlucha. I no longer want Shaul to be the melech. I, it's abhorrent in my eyes. He's turned the wrong way. And Hashem gives directions to Shmuel. I want you to go to Yishai, one of his sons is going to be the king, you'll go and anoint him. At which point, Shmuel turns to Hashem and says, Ech elech, how can I go? Shaul is the king, he'll hear that I'm going to anoint another person in his stead, and he'll kill me. Hashem answers back, Take a little eagle, take a little calf, you'll tell Shaul that you're going to bring a carbon, he'll fall for the ruse, and then on the way you'll appoint one of Yishai's sons to be the uh, the next king. Chavazavov says, wait a minute, stop. This is Hashem speaking to a Novi, to a prophet. And Hashem says, go. And the Novi says, no, I can't. Hashem, a big powerful king, Shaul. Hashem should have blasted him. <clears throat> Who gives life? Who gives death? You're afraid of a little mortal king? I'm the creator of heavens and earth. But not only didn't Hashem blast Shmuel, he gave him an eagle. Okay, take an eagle and take a little calf and tell Shaul you're going to bring a korban. Says the Chavos the reason why is because it was Bari Hazeka. It was very dangerous. And even a Novi Hashem, given a directive from Hashem, is not allowed to put himself in a Makam Sakana. And what Shmuel did was the appropriate Ishtadlis, because you have to go B'derech HaTeva, only once you've totally exhausted the Derech HaTeva, only then are you allowed to rely on the Nisim. And I believe that's exactly the answer to Bitochan and Ishtadlis. I have to recognize one thing clearly. Every outcome is determined by Hashem. And yet, I have to do my part. I have to use the world and the ways of the world. I have to go through the motions. I have to recognize that exactly that which is supposed to be will be. 
But I have to do my part using the world in the ways of the world. To earn a living, you got to get a job. <clears throat> to be healthy, eat right, exercise. When it's time to get married, you go out and find your basharat. But I have to recognize this, this dichotomy. Every outcome is determined by Hashem, <clears throat> yet my job is to use the world in the ways of the world because that's the way Hashem wants me to do it. And if you'd like a muscle to help bridge the gap in a practical manner, imagine the following. Imagine you're at a play, and at the end of the play, the two actors, the two stars, get into a fist fight. Punch, kick, the grip, fall on the floor, curtain comes down, play is over. Ten minutes later, you go backstage, and you see the two actors. One slaps the other on the back. Oh, wow, your punch tonight was so good. Oh, and your kick, I was... What are you guys doing? Laughing, split. What are you... Ten minutes ago, you're fighting on stage. And the actors look at you go, fighting on stage? We were fighting. There was a choreographed fight scene. I was supposed to swing wide. He was supposed to duck. When I go out into the marketplace, anyone seeing me should see a determined, very, very ambitious person. And all the while, I have to know that this is a choreographed fight scene. Exactly the outcome is determined already. Exactly what will be Hashem has already set. My job is to go out there, use the world in the ways of the world, I have to be like that actor, going through the motions, all the while knowing that my actions determine nothing, everything is determined by Hashem. And this balance is very difficult to really feel, and really difficult to attain, because it's very easy to feel it's kochi v'atzim yodi, it's my brilliance, my acumen, and it's also very easy to say, it's all Hashem, it's all Hashem, and not recognize my job, which is to do my part. But finding this balance is something that requires an awful lot of work, an awful lot of thought, and isn't really very simple. And I have what I call a practical muscle that I think will help actually do it. See, the choreographed fight scene lets us intellectually understand it. <clears throat> but if you want to know Lamaisa, how do you determine in any given situation what this Shtadlis is, I have a very simple muscle. <clears throat> Imagine that there's a tightrope 150 feet above the circus floor. And imagine the tightrope walker is walking across that tightrope. Now, if you've ever gone to the circus, although Barnum & Bailey is no longer in business, but if you've ever taken your kids or grandchildren to the circus, you know that one of the highlights of the circus is the tightrope walker. He's up there doing his flips and doing his things. Very interesting. But you also know that if he falls, it's not the end of the world because there's a net below him that catches him. Okay. Now, I think it was in the 1930s when Barnum and Bailey brought the circus to New York, and the acrobat decided he was going to add some pizzazz to the show. The same routine, same 150 feet above the concrete, but now without a net. Now, this fellow had done this thousands of times before, but when he got out onto that tightrope, everyone in the audience, and he as well, understood there was something very different. And the gravity of the moment was gripping, there was electricity in the air. <clears throat> Even though he had done it thousands of times before, this time was very different. That, I believe, is a perfect muscle to our bitachan and ishtadlis. <clears throat> when I go out into the world, I have to go about my business as if there's no net. If I fall off this tightrope, I'm going to die. I'll fall to the concrete below. That's how I go through my actions and all the while I have to recognize, of course there's a net, Hashem is there. I have to be using the world in a very realistic <coughs> manner, much like the 
choreographed fight scene after you go through the motions. You looking at me should see a person driven, ambitious, captivating the world. At the same moment, I have to recognize that I do nothing. I'm walking that tightrope. If I slip, <clears throat> Hashem's below, there's a neck catching me. And if you'd like to know why that muscle is so important, I think that's because that's exactly how you answer any question about bitachon, about shtadlus. If you have a question, should I or shouldn't I, how much effort, how much I shouldn't, and the very first thing you do is take Hashem out of the equation. Imagine you are not Jewish. Imagine you went to a financial advisor and said, based on my skill set, based on the market situation, what would be a reasonable activity for me to engage in? You take Hashem out of the picture, and that determines the derech ha-teva. That's the ways of the world. And then you know that when you pursue the ways of the world, exactly that which Hashem determined to be, will be. I have to go about my business as if it's my actions, as if there's no net. I'm walking that tightrope, if I fall, I'll die. All the while understanding that Hashem is there to catch me. I have to go through the motions like it's real, yet understand that it's not. And the derech teva is the first point that a person stops on when it's time to an- analyze and time to determine one's ishtadlis. <clears throat> what is the derech teva? Is there a plan? Does it make sense? According to the ways of the world, is this responsible? Is this prudent? Is this wise? <clears throat> if the answer is yes, I pursue it. If the answer is no, I do not pursue it. And derech teva is the first guideline and the first directive for determining the right hishtadlis. However, there's one very important caveat. Imagine the following. Imagine I have a very successful retail business, and things are going very well, I'm thriving, the business is flourishing, and one day my CFO walks into the office and says, listen boss, i got to tell you, you know, online internet is killing our business, Circuit City, Best Buy, they open up, we're, we're, we're dying. Listen, boss, I know you got this policy about not being open on Saturday, but I'm telling you, if we stay closed on Saturday, we'll be bankrupt, we're going under. What do I do? I have to go B'derach HaTeva. B'derach is, if I don't keep my stores open on Shabbos, I'm going to be bankrupt. So here's a very important caveat. I'm using the world and the ways of the world because that's the way Hashem wants me to act. But if the Torah tells me, uh-uh, and that's not the way Hashem wants me to act, then guess what? I can't act that way. <coughs> Hashem says, it says, six days work and the seventh day you shall rest. That means to say, any hishtadlus that I do, any using the world in the ways of the world has to be bracketed, has to be defined by the Torah. All I'm doing when I'm using the world is serving Hashem the way He wants me to use it, but obviously the Torah tells me don't work on Shabbos, it means don't work on Shabbos. If the Torah tells me I have to learn, I have to daven, I have to have a family, I have to do these things, then that is the Torah-defined Hishtadlus. The first guidepost I look for, for is the Derech HaTeva, but the ways of the world have to be bracketed by the rest of the Torah. The Torah says do this, don't do that, and obviously if the Torah says don't do this or do that, that's what Hashem wants me to do, because at the end of the day, all I'm doing is using the world in the way that Hashem wants me to. And if you'd like to understand the answer to Moshe Rabbeinu, I think there's really not much of a question, because the answer is really based on one single understanding, who determines the outcome. And to explain to you what I mean, imagine the following. 
Frank the cookie baker. Every day Frank comes home from work with two packages of cookies and his kids love him and his kids think he's the best thing since sliced bread. In any case, the first grade class is having a bake contest and they ask Frank's father to come in because he's the baker. They ask him to come in and help with some recipes. The only problem is that Frank can't help them much because you see, Frank works at Stelladoro factory. At 4.20 every morning he turns on the switch and the conveyor belts begin the convection oven start. Frank doesn't know the recipe. He doesn't know the heat. He doesn't know the systems. Frank's job it is to turn the switch and then the conveyor belts and the machinery do what they're supposed to do. When a human being does something in this world and we call him active, we call him a creator, most of the time he's a zero. When a couple have a child, it's their child. They brought the child into the world. Do the parents know how to weave the 100 billion neurons in the brain, and do they know how to stretch the skin, and do they know how to synthesize proteins? The parents made a decision to have a child, and that's like putting on the switch, and then the gears went into motion. What they did was they tapped the force that Hashem created, much like Frank who turns the switch and the cookie machine begins pumping out Swiss fudge cookies, much like when a couple has a child, they use a system that Hashem created. And what Hashem was saying to Moshe Benin was, you have to make the menorah. You can't make the menorah, but you can use a system that I created called the fire. And that it can't be called your asiyah, can't be called you're using it until you have an image, until you know what you're doing. And once you have an image and then you throw your clump into the fire, you're using a system that I created, but it's you using the system, then you're credited with being the creator of it. And that's every creation that we human beings ever engage in. We create nothing. And we use the system that Hashem created. We go through the motions to earn a living. We go through motions to stay healthy. We go through motions when it's time to have a child. But all that's doing is turning the switch. And all that's doing is just going through the motion. Hashem determines exactly the outcome. And what Hashem said to Moshe Benu is you have to see the image. You have to know what it is you're creating. And when you have that image in your mind, then when you throw your gold into the fire... And then what comes out will be your asiyah, your making it. And that's why Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu the fire. And I believe this concept is very, very fundamental to much of life. And I'll share with you what I mean. In our day and age, we experience as a Jewish community probably one of the greatest miracles since Kabbalah Satorah, since Yisrael Mitzrayim. And a miracle is not just the fact that the Jewish nation exists and not just the fact that we still we came back to our land. Uh-uh. If you want to know one of the most phenomenal miracles that we experience on a daily basis, I'll share with you a question that I get very, very often. A young man will come to me and say, listen, you know, uh, I have to earn a living. What do you recommend I do? What field do you recommend I go into? Should I pursue law and medicine? Should I become an accountant. You know, I'm learning now, but I have to be prudent about my ishtalos. What area should I go into? Now, let me explain to you why I find that very, very challenging to answer. <clears throat> what does it cost to live in the firm community today? Right? If, imagine you have a family, let's say, a, you know, a healthy family, six kids, let's say, average family. <clears throat> what is the cost of living a year for an average firm family? So <clears throat> let's begin with housing. If you buy a house in Muncie or in Brooklyn or Queens or wherever it may be, if you spend less than $600,000, I don't know where you're going to find something like that. 
$600,000 is the entry level. Okay, now certainly if you're in Muncie or other places, you got also property taxes and a lot of other things. And then there's something called tuition. Now, tuition is a very interesting little phenomenon because if the average school in New York, the tuition is about $15,000. In Lakewood, I understand it's a little bit less, but certainly by the time your kids are in high school, paying fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 a child a year is average. Meaning if you have six kids, you could expect to pay $100,000 a year in tuition with tuition breaks. And keep in mind this seminary, which is twenty-five grand, and there are no tuition breaks. <clears throat> also by mitzvahs and also <clears throat> weddings. Don't forget there's also a thing called clothing and food. If you'd like to know the entry level, the entry level in the Jewish nation today in the firm world is about $250,000. Now, if you think that's not a tidy sum, let's look about the United States of America. And let's ask ourselves, what percentage of the United States earns $250,000? Let's look at the households across the country and see what percentage earn that amount. And would you like to know what the answer is? The answer is 1.5%. Meaning 1.5% of the richest country in the world, the, that, those people earn that large sum of money. But we're not talking about the gvirim, the highly successful entrepreneurs and the Jewish people. Every single family needs about $250,000 to live. Now, obviously, there aren't many jobs that pay that. And obviously, something is a little strange. I once spoke to a person I know very well who was the director of a very large yeshiva. They had about a thousand girls in the girls' school, about 800 boys in a boys' school, so it represented a wide swath of the Jewish people. And I asked them the following. Okay, it's very, very expensive to live. And let's assume that number, $250,000. What percentage of the parent body earn that much money. Now keep in mind, he dealt with every single tuition. So he looked at the tax returns and he knew the real numbers. And I asked him, what percentage of the parent body earned $250,000? He said about half. I said, okay. And what about the other half? He said, I don't know. I said, have you heard of one single eviction? Of all of the 1,800 students in your school, was there a family that was evicted from their house ever? He thinks for a minute and says, yeah, yeah, I think there once was. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And what I'm saying to you is that this is one of the greatest miracles you've ever seen. How is it possible? I know Jews are smart. I know Jews are talented. I got it. But how do you earn the entire Jewish nation has to earn what 1.5% of the rest of the population earns? How is it possible? And the answer is, you see the Yad Hashem. And some people earn it on the front end by salary or successful business. Some people earn it through, I don't know, somehow it just works out. Somehow it is that it just seems to happen. And if you'd like to understand exactly what a person has to do, this is where you have to throw your clump of gold into the fire. Meaning, if you're a young person, your job in life is to get married, have, have a family, and you have to recognize there probably is no way, according to the ways of the world, that you're going to earn enough money to pay those bills. Nevertheless, you have to go forward. You have to use your wisdom. You have to think. You have to show aids. You have to ask people. 
and you have to choose the best direction. And your choice of the best direction is your right ishtadlis, and then you rely on Hashem. <clears throat> How is it possible that an accountant is going to earn that much money? You leave it up to God. <clears throat> you have to have a plan. You have to do as much as you can in the ways of the world. You certainly can't be reckless. You can't be irresponsible. But at a certain point, you know that this is what the Torah wants. You step forward, you do it. That is your right ishtadlis. And I believe this Chazal shares with us a tremendous yesod. What Hashem was saying to Moshe Benin was, there is no way you'll have the wisdom to be able to fashion a menorah. But you have to be the one to make it. How could that be? You have to see the image. When you see the image and then you throw the clump of gold in, you're using a force that I created. Much like a couple have a child. They don't know how to create the child, but they're, they turn the switch and what comes out is accredited to them. Most of you, when you throw your clump of gold into the fire, when you know what you're doing, when you're using it for that image, then it's attributed to you. This balance of bitochen and ishtalis is a very, very difficult balance. I have to know and understand that every single outcome is completely in the hand of Hashem. No human being can harm me. No human being can help me. You could dream, you can scheme, you can't change my destiny. You can't even embarrass me if I'm not supposed to be embarrassed. If someone yells at me, I'm supposed to look heavenward and say, Hashem, thank you for revealing a little of my many sins. I have to recognize that any pain, any embarrassment, any displeasure that I have in this world is not brought by Yenem, not brought by Him, and sent from a message from above, sent by Hashem. I have to recognize no human being can harm me, and no human being can help me. Nevertheless, I have to do my part in the ways of the world. Noah had to build a teva, as much as you can build. 300 amas, that's as much as we can expect. But you have to do your part in the ways of the world. Only once you've exhausted the ways of the world, then you can rely on Hashem. Yeshua brought the army to fight. Sharpen your swords, don your armor. And you're going to win with miracles, but you have to use the derech teva, use the ways of the world as much as you can, only then rely on a miracle. And when Shmuel HaNovi was told by Hashem, go appoint David, Shmuel says to Hashem, Ech elech, I can't go. Why? Because it was dangerous. And even a Novi Hashem is not allowed to willingly put himself into danger. Hashem said, you're right. Take this ego bucker. Because my job is to use the world in the ways of the world, and that is the balance. I have to be very active, much like that choreographed fight scene. I have to be throwing the punches and it looks real, and I have to know that it's a choreographed fight scene. The outcome is already determined. And when it comes time to actually determine what I should do, I'm walking that tightrope. When I'm walking that tightrope, I have to say to myself, there's no net. It's up to me. I have to make every decision with taking Hashem out of the picture. Hashem's not in it. What would a financial advisor say to me? I have to do my part as if there's no net. All the while, I have to know there is a net. And what does that mean? That means that my derech teva is always bracketed by the Torah. If I have to close my shop on Shabbos, I know that Hashem wants me to do that. I'm using the world in a way through it because that's what Hashem wants. And it means to say, if I have a plan, and a plan doesn't exactly add up, but this is clearly what the Torah wants me to do, I have to set forth, put in my best effort, and know that Hashem runs the world. <clears throat> Ultimately, this balance is something that requires a lifetime to achieve, but that's what Hashem wants from us, to use the world in the ways of the world, knowing ultimately that every outcome is up to Hashem. And now, I'd like to open the floor to questions. I see a number of people wrote questions in already, which is fine. But I would much rather take live questions, so please feel free to... You could write questions in if you're shy, but I'd like much prefer to take questions live, so I'm going to call on Jake C. You have the floor. Hi. Hi.
Hi, Rabbi Schaefer. Thank you very much sure. for uh, your great cheer. Um, so one thing I'm struggling with is, you know, it seems like the underlying principle here is you have to conform to Derech HaTeva at the same time understanding that uh, Hashem is is in control and obviously it needs to be bookended by uh, not being over any, you know, any any issue. Right. So, you know, if, if, so let's just say, you know, somebody starts their own business. Mm-hmm. You know, but there I think the number is something, you know, something over 60, 60% of businesses in the first 10 years. Yep. And if you, the other 40% uh, that succeeded, they'll tell you that, you know, the only way to succeed is to work 60 hour weeks, 70 hour weeks, 80 hour weeks. And when, when it becomes more of a gray area, like how much time you're spending with your kids and your wife, uh, and whether or not you're starting, you know, a side hustle, mm-hmm. uh, less about being over, uh, you know, an obvious deraisa, uh, like Shabbos, and more about just finding that, that balance. Right. Okay, so I have, yeah, I think it's an excellent question, and I have a very simple formula to use. If you start your own business, you're allowed six months to sleep under the desk, meaning it is a normal ishtadlis for six months to really pump, to really work, to be driven, and literally, you know, say, explain to your wife, your kids, I'm sorry, for six months, but that's it. After that point, you have to then resume a normal schedule. Now, unfortunately, a normal schedule in our world is not exactly nine to five. A normal schedule is a lot longer. But the idea of 60, 80 hour weeks is okay for limited time. But then you have to pull back to what's considered a normal ishtadlis in our time. And I'm sorry to say, it's not no longer nine to five. It's unfortunate. Um, one recommendation I have, and I tell this to everyone that I know, if you own a business, buy the book E-Myth, E-Myth. It's by Michael Gerber, and, and my wife and I, we own a business. You know, I don't live off the schmooze, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't take a salary uh, from the schmooze. We have a business that we've been running. My wife began it when I was in Kolo 32 years ago. Um, and my involvement in a business, I was, I mean, I'll say this, maybe I shouldn't say this, I'm the CEO for... <clears throat> Years, for 10 years or more, I spent two hours a week in the business. Two hours a week. Because at the very outset, we emith the business. Emith is a system of creating systems to run your business. So you're not running and doing it, you create systems to run it. You do have to put in an awful lot of effort. You do have to put a lot of work. Go e-myth, pick it up on Amazon. It will be one of the best books you ever bought. And if you follow it, I'm telling you it'll change because really it's it's just a system so that you can run a business efficiently and you can run it effectively. Bottom line is your shtadlis has to be derech teva bracketed by by the ways of the world here with by the Torah. What that means that here is six months is okay to really totally sleep under the desk, but after that you have to scale back and you have to make it work. If it's supposed to work, it will. But after that, you have to learn, you have to daven, you have to be a father, and it means you have to take the time needed, and you have to create the system so that you can do it. And by the way, you should know, I know many successful businessmen, are you ready for this? Take a deep breath. Many successful businessmen who work four hours a day. Many. Many. I'm not saying it's everyone, but I am telling you this. If you are sincere, and you work really hard, and you build your business, you're going to Build it for years, years and years. But if you have a dream, and you say to Hashem, Hashem, what I want to do is I want to learn half a day. I need a business, because I have to, I have to meet my finance my family. I need a business, please help me be matzliach. And if you work at that goal, and work on that dream, it's going to take you years. 
But if after five years, ten years, maybe fifteen, you might well be lucky enough, it's up to Hashem to determine whether you're the person who will succeed half a day learning, half a day running a business. But again, I'm telling you, I know many people who are highly successful, highly successful, who don't work nine to five. Now don't get me wrong, the average person works a lot more than nine to five, but there's nothing wrong with the dream of being able to take care of your family and take care of needs in the community and learn and etc., as long as you have a plan and you dominate, you ask Hashem, sometimes Hashem allows you. All right? <clears throat> okay, Martia. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. Um, next. Hi, Grace Tzadik. We haven't heard from you in such a long time. Such a long time. I haven't, seen, I haven't heard from you. But I do want to take a couple other questions before I apologize. Not that I'm ignoring you right up there on the top. But I do have, actually, I have a question that someone um, emailed in and asked me very much to please answer it. Okay, here's the question. Uh, I really enjoy this. I have a question. Um, now, especially during this time, I feel everyone is going through so many challenges, and I'm going through many personal challenges myself. I understand that Hashem has tailor-made my situation for my utmost growth and best of my neshama. However, how can I push myself to constantly think positive and be besimcha with the challenges that Hashem has given me? Okay, that is the question. How can I be besimcha? How can I have betachan? Okay, so let me be candid. Number one, Corona has done quite a number on on most of us. It is abnormal, and it is very. Um, and most people don't do well being locked into a house or an apartment, or it's abnormal. It's just not normal living conditions. So, and the fact that you're finding it difficult, yeah, that's that's part of the game. And 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 you can't. There's nothing you can do other than just you know do your best. If you want to know what your bitachon level should be, it's probably good enough. If that's how you're asking the question, you're probably doing what you should be doing. If you want a theoretical, you know, where the ovals would be, I'll give you a muscle that I think defines exactly your, what your attitude, again, if you are the ovals most could be. Imagine a six-year-old girl who takes her mother's hand as they're going for the second round of chemo treatment. Now, that six-year-old girl knows exactly what's coming. She already lost her hair, she already lost her appetite, was sick for three weeks, and this is the second round. And yet she takes her mother's hand because she knows that mommy knows best. Bitochen means that I trust Hashem. Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. I take my heavy load and I transfer to Hashem. It doesn't mean this path is going to be pleasant. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be lots of bumps along the way. But I know that there's a driver I know that Hashem is leading me. I know that Hashem knows what He's doing. Right now, we're living through a time that's very difficult. That's not. That's the way it is. <clears throat> Am I supposed to be dancing for joy? Again, if I were Yosef at Tzadik, Yosef was thrown into the pit for 10 years, and he was the happy man, the Medrash called, who's always dancing. Okay, those are the Tzadikim, those are the Gdolim, and the Ovos. But halavai <clears throat> that we get to the following understanding. Hashem is leading me, Hashem is directing me, and Hashem knows better than I what's my best. Is it difficult? Yeah. Am I supposed to be sunshiny all day? No. Am I supposed to be smiling all day? Again, you could work on it, you could dream about it, but at the end of the day, just understanding that Hashem knows what He's doing, Hashem is guiding me, and Hashem knows what's my best, better than I. That's a single cognition that a person should have. All right, that's my spiel on that. Okay, Reis Tzadik, go for it. Let's go. I think you'll have to talk, yeah. Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, hi. First, <laughs> some of the 
some observation how Jewish people live. I used to work in Jewish bank, so I have a lot of Jewish customers. They have retail store, appliance store, and the jewelry store, Canal Street. If you remember, it used to be Jewish, now it's Chinese. Yep. So we even have uh, the guy who was uh, president of Nathan uh, Beef Franks. Number one, all of them so stingy, you can't believe it. On Christmas or uh, Hanukkah, they give us... Hey, you sound like an anti-Semite. I sort of knew this was coming. Grace Tzadik, we're going to make yeah, you a Grace Tzadik. Where's your Avash Yisrael? For every cheap Jew you'll find, I'll find you Jews who give double miser. And for any, uh, you're going to tell me Jews steal. For any Jews steal, I can tell you 20 people who are honest to the day is, is long. But go ahead, a little anti-Semitism. Go for it, let me hear. I, I agree, I agree. Oh. Oh. But uh, um, their kids, their kids, no, 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 I'm not saying about that. But <clears throat> how they run their business. Most of our customers was the kids of some Jews who came in 1930s from Poland, Romania, Russia, whatever. Their fathers and grandfathers works like 24-7. No Shabbos, no Mabbas. They work on, right. on all Jewish holidays. They make uh, and they have, uh, real estate, businesses, whatever. They inherited it. That's how they can make it, $250,000. And most of them not so bright. And most of them even stupid. And they have like big stores. And they say, how come this dumbest, oh, pardon my French, have such a big store? They say, oh, we inherited it. Okay, so I, I, most of them... That's how they live. Okay, so let me comment on that. Okay, I, I agree. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry. My yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, comment. Okay. Continue. My comment on that is, you are right. There is definitely hereditary wealth. There's definitely many families that have wealth coming from previous generations. And there are many, many people I know who started out plain and regular. Plain, regular went to school, got a job, and somehow are hugely successful, moderately successful. So it is true, there are families that have great wealth, and there are plenty of very successful people today who come from no wealth, and plenty of regular people who come from no wealth. So, you know, I don't know, it's, uh, it's not all. Believe me, I know the anti-Semites love to say, you see, the Jews, it's their rich parents, that's why they succeed. It's, you have lots of money, it's easy to make money. Yeah, I know, but uh, we got to get you a little more obviously stroll. That's the next move, obviously stroll. Well, yeah. I came... I came to this country with $100 30 years ago. My, my wife, my kid, and in five years I bought a house. I have a place in Tokyo. I have some real estate in Florida, whatever. So it was... Beautiful. I had only $100, and I don't know the link. I don't know the system. Nothing. But anyway, my question is about you. How do you know about Circus de Soleil or Bailey, whatever? You're not supposed to go there. <laughs> I don't understand it again. I went to one of the last exhibits of Barnum. So I'll tell you, Barnum and Bailey. One of the last exhibits was Cholamoid Sukkis. It was just before they closed. They had a special Cholamoid Sukkis, and I took my grandchildren then to the to the circus. That was uh, and that was right before Barnum and Bailey closed. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. We don't go. It's a lot of. Unappropriate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I went. Barnum and Bailey was it was circus, uh, and it was a, it was a kosher act. They cleaned up their act. And it was run by I, I don't know who, which organization I forget did it, but it was beautiful. It was really it was made for families, and it was really a beautiful, uh, specifically made for from uh, people. And it was again one of the last times that Barnum and Bailey uh, performed. All right, Grace Tzadik, good hearing from you. Much tzlacha.
right, please feel free to raise your hand if you have any questions. Josh, you have the... One second, Josh, I think you have the floor. I think you do, yes. Erev Tov, can you hear me? Yes, I can, hi. Great. So, regarding the Bitachon uh, and Tishchad um, Moose, uh-huh. it's like, so I'm like, I'm a real estate agent, you know, and it's like, we have to, we, you know, we're not 9 to 5, we're like 12 five, to 12. Yeah, 5, five to 9. Yeah, it doesn't stop, you know, it's just <clears> like, <throat> Something we got to do it now, you know. Where, regarding the bitachon and chishtalus, like, what? Where do you draw the line? Like, where do you? Where are you? Like, okay, I pushed, I pushed, I pushed, I did everything I can. I'm punching. I'm doing this. I, I'm, I'm, you know. And you start to like get like, you know, to a certain level. Like, when is the point where you're like bitachon, or is it like bitachon like with every single step of the way and so that's something that I'm kind of like struggling with right now because it's like I feel like I'm not the creator so I can't like convince people to do something I can only do my best but I want to do it in the in the in the ways of Hashem like I want to do it in the ethical way and push mm-hmm. hard but then where do you release on the bitachon right question. it's an excellent question and the answer is you have to push you have to push but you have to set limits and limits mean I also have to daven, I also have to learn, I have to have time for my family. That means I have an eight-hour workday. But by the way, most people who work five to nine, they don't really work five to nine. They're not really focused five to nine. I remember there was a time when I, when I had to take off some time to work on the business. And I was working the business, and a Redvidu Shiva in Rochester, where I was a Rebbe, called me up and he apologized for, for interrupting me because he knew, like, if I'm working, it's like, extremely focused time. I've got a job to do. Let's get it done. And I'm finished. But it's, it's extremely focused time. You see, what you want to learn to do is allocate exactly the right amount of time for the business and then you stop. Now, obviously, it's intermittent because, again, if it's a real estate deal and you get a call, I understand you got to stop. But you also set aside time that's specifically for learning, for dominating, for family, whatever it may be. And the rest of the time, you work like you work as much as you can, you work as hard as you can, but you bracket away, you steal away time, and that's for what you're supposed to be doing. In that situation, you're not going to be putting in as much hours. First of all, you'll probably be much more productive with that limited time, but then you'll know you'll get the Seat Hashem, you'll get Hashem's help that you're supposed to. You're doing your part. You're using the world in the ways of the world. It's a normal Ishtadlis, it's a regular, but you know that the outcome's up to Hashem, and you know that there's certain things you have to do, you take off Shabbos, you take off time to learn, time to daven, time to be with family, that you have to, and the rest of the time, you do the work. Does that answer the so, question a little bit? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think okay. that's, uh, that's pretty good. It's just like having that reminder, and, and I love, I really enjoy what you said about the, um, about following, like, um, Derek Ataba. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I mean, everybody is, in our industry, it's so competitive, it's like, Everybody is even, uh, even the secular Jewish people here, like they're all working on, on Shabbos. They're all like going out and they're making tons of money and they're, and they say that a lot of their business deals are happening on Shabbat. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's, it's so competitive that if you're not on, then the next guy gets the deal. And so it's like, that's where it's like, you know. But do you ever notice like somehow, some reason, some guys get lucky. Somehow, yeah. some guys get the deals and it goes through, and other guys get the deal and it blows up. And like, oh, where, that's where you watch Hashem. <clears throat> watch Hashem in the ultimate, you know, in, in the end game. Watch Hashem at the end of the year when you count how much money you made. That, that's where you see, you know, 
where things really stand. Mm, okay, you. good, good, much aslacha. <laughs> okay, um, let me just mute that one second. Stable talking, one second. Okay, please feel free to uh, raise your hand if you have questions. I do have one other question from a that was emailed in that I want to answer. Uh, the question is as follows. My husband doesn't use a budget, and when we tried to make one, it never ended up working out. He's not a big spender, but doesn't keep track of finances, etc. I'm the one who does the bills. That's something that works for both of us. But I tend to wonder, is it okay to spend without a cheshman, without calculation? For example, is it okay to give extra stucco, buy something that we can't afford right now, and say that Hashem will send the money? Okay, so let me tell you something that's, I think, fundamental to understand. And Rashi explains, when the Gemara says exactly the amount of money you're to make is set on Rosh Hashanah, not a penny more, not a penny less, and Rashi there says, therefore, don't make a large expenditure. Meaning, if you're going to spend a lot of money in the beginning of the year on some large expenditure, you don't know that you're going to be given more. The amount of money you're to make that year is set, 50000 500000 whatever the amount is, it's set. And therefore, you can't make very large expenditures with saying, I rely on Hashem, Hashem will bring. Now, that being said, if what you mean is that you make approximately, you know, whatever the, even if you don't know exactly what the number is, but you're basically living within your means, so occasionally you spend a little more, but you know it's within normal realms, that's fine, it sounds like a fine ishtadus. You know, you're not talking about a huge expenditure, you're not talking about spending extravagant, you're talking about spending a little bit more without an exact calculation, and that sounds reasonable because, again, within what you're making, that's normally ends meet. At the end of the year, you're able to pay your bills. So then if you spend a little more earlier, spend a little less later, I think that's fine. Obviously, you're a lot better off if you could do a real calculation. It's very difficult, but the right way to do this is from the time you get married, you set a budget. This much for food, this much for housing, and this is the amount we make, and 10% goes to Miser, and we spend the rest. Now, you're right, it's very difficult to budget, especially in the firm world where the budget doesn't make sense. So how do you budget if, if we have expenditures, we have to spend this much, but we don't make them. So uh, I get it. But at the end of the day, it's better to budget. If you can't, what you're doing there sounds reasonable, because again, you know, for argument's sake, let's say you, you make $100,000 a year, so you spend a little here, a little more there, and you know you're spending about that much within the year, so you're fine, you don't, even if you're not exactly calculating. Again, it's better to budget, absolutely. If you can't, you know, it's fine. Okay, I want to thank everyone for joining. I also want to mention that, Baruch Hashem, the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes, the pre-publication copy is out for anyone who um, joined in the uh, fundraiser. You'll get a copy soon. If you didn't join in the fundraiser, but you'd like a copy, send me an email. We'll figure out how to get your copy. Um, but this is a pre-publication copy. The actual book won't be out for probably months and months. Uh, also, if you'd like to receive the Shmooz WhatsApp, be part of the Shmooz WhatsApp Chizuk group, please send a, a, please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Three, four times a week we send out these motivational two-minute videos. If you'd like to get that, just send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Good Shabbos. Thank you for joining. Hope to see you next week.